I'm Mark Roderman, and this is Front Row. Coming up, President Biden mandates the COVID-19 vaccine for millions of Americans. Democrats in the General Assembly push for expanded unemployment benefits, and the constitutional amendment case heads to North Carolina's Supreme Court. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Morgan Jackson, Chief Political Strategist for Governor Roy Cooper, Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11, and Jay Chaudhry, the Democratic Whip in the Senate. Jonah, let's begin with the president's vaccine mandate. Well, this gets to the heart of public service and government and what is the difference between compelling and convincing and where does the line basically establish itself between doing something for the public good versus a personal liberty. And what the Biden administration has done is basically say, look, we've given you all this time, we're giving you all the data to convince you to get a vaccine. A large portion of America is still unvaccinated. At this point, they kind of know what the data is out there and they're refusing to do it. Biden administration is saying for the good of the public, whether they're going to work, whether they're potentially going to travel, Biden administration is saying that if you are working for a company that has more than 100 employees, you must require vaccinations. You must have a COVID-19 vaccine. The president himself, as the chief executive of the country, he manages, of course, an administration of some 8 million employees. That's his own department. So I don't think there's any constitutional question of whether he can mandate or require a vaccine for those employees. The question is, does the government have the right to be able to basically tap into private business affairs. And there's two really Supreme Court precedents that play into this. One is Jacobson versus Massachusetts, beginning of the uh, 20th century, where basically the Supreme Court ruled the general liberty of the people is more important than the personal liberty of one person because this, in this okay. case, the town can do it. But the second uh, case is saying if it's a therapeutic, even if it's to save your life, you don't have to you can't be compelled to take that. So very interesting uh, things here. And I'm not sure this won't be this is not the first challenge. It certainly won't be the last. Mitch, you have the floor. Yeah, certainly. I think there's the debate about the vaccine and whether it's needed and how helpful it is that you should set aside when you're talking about the mandate, because the first question is, is this something that the president of the United States is allowed to do? Is it constitutional? Yeah, a lot of people are saying it's completely unconstitutional under various issues, the separation of powers. If this is something that the federal government could do, should it be the president or Congress? Should it be a law rather than something that's just dictated by one individual? Uh, there are also questions about the Fifth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, whether this is something that if it's going to be done, should it be done at the state level? I think there are a lot of questions. If this actually goes forward, there's also 
also the whole thing about how you would enforce this. Uh, the president has gone to OSHA to right, say... Right, OSHA is undermanned, correct? Right, OSHA is undermanned, but uh, the president has said, come up with this emergency rule, OSHA. Well, how would they actually enforce it? There are a lot of questions surrounding that. Morgan, does the governor favor the mandate? Listen, the governor's already put a... It's not so much a mandate in place but uh, as far as vaccinations, but on state employees at the end of this month, uh, there are two choices, either get the vaccine or you have to be tested weekly. Uh, and that's going into effect in the next couple of weeks. Listen, I think the, the real thing around public policy around this and market you're seeing in polls is about two thirds of Americans support mandates. And what, the, what is at the heart of that is you've got about two thirds of Americans that are vaccinated or 60 plus percent of them. And I, I think you're starting to see people, the frustration of those that are vaccinated right. who want to get back to normal, normal life, meaning no mask, no all these uh, restrictions. And they see the impediment to getting back to normal to the folks that are not vaccinated. That's why the Delta variant has taken off. That's why these other variants okay. are concerned. We we got to get it done. Jay, jump in here. Let me ask you, what's the impact on businesses that have 100, you know, if their employees don't want to do it? Well, I mean, I think a lot of businesses, uh, similar as Morgan talked about, are going to either they're going to either offer the vaccine, take the vaccine, or get tested. I mean, in some instances, I think we're seeing uh, businesses decide that employees can't come back. Twenty-four but, attorney generals are going to challenge this at the Supreme Court level. I think. I mean, there is there is a legal question about OSHA, but I think the broader point to keep in mind, and the courts will decide that, is that I think the business communities behind this. I mean, I think there are questions about implementation. Some of the business community. But I mean, Tyson Food, right. for example, has seen that their their vaccination rates have gone up from 40% to 70%. So we know that that's um, worked. And we also know that if we want to keep our kids in school and want the economy to go keep okay. going, we've got to get the vaccine. We've got to move. I'm coming right back to you. Let's talk about the General Assembly's week. Yeah, so it's been a relatively slow week at the uh, General Assembly since uh, Republican leaders have been behind closed doors negotiating the budget. But uh, Senator Wiley Nickel of Wake County this week uh, held a press conference urging Republican colleagues to pass legislation to raise state benefits to $500 a week for 26 weeks. Uh, he argued that this plan, um, we can we can implement this plan because we have $2.8 million or a billion dollars, excuse me, in the trust fund. Uh, Republican leaders have rejected this idea since uh, 2013 when they cut back benefits to $350 a week for 13 weeks, uh, with second, second worst uh, benefit system in the country. Uh, Republicans have said that they have done so because it was a way for us to actually build a healthy trust fund. I think what's more interesting in the debate is that Republicans have said that the additional federal benefits that have actually expired actually created a disincentive for displaced workers to come back into the workforce. A Republic, the Democrats have countered to say that that's, there's no evidence to support that. But in fact, uh, if we had more child care and we had more health care access, uh, we would see more folks coming back to work. Mr. Governor had several vetoes. One was on curriculum and, and transparency and putting uh, the curriculum online. Yeah, the, the, the main two vetoes that we saw most recently were the one on the anti-school indoctrination bill that a lot of people have tied to critical race theory and the debates about that. The, another one was uh, against the uh, rioting, that there were going to be new penalties for people involved in uh, riots that, that stem out of the otherwise peaceful protests. I think in both of those cases you saw they were party line votes that Republicans liked the legislation, Democrats didn't. So I don't think in either one of these cases is there a likelihood that there's going to be an override of the governor's vetoes. Morgan. I agree. I think those, those are, are going to stand. I think on the unemployment issue, uh, as Jay talked about, a lot of the sort of messaging out there about how bad this is bad for the economy has been debunked. It's actually shown that it's very good for the economy. You know, another issue that uh, is coming up and is not getting traction with the Republicans in the General Assembly is the raising the minimum wage. 
Uh, right now, uh, not only is unemployment the paltry, the second worst in the nation, which is really a challenge for families in crisis. Uh, you look at the states, by the way, we talk about the federal, the states that refused the federal employment took $2 billion out of their economy. Uh, those are so spent. So you take a Keynesian point of view that you print more money, you put more money in people's pocket from the government, it helps the economy? I, I think it clearly has. I think the studies show that it has. And I, listen, I, I think there's an expiration of all these at the right time. But while we're still in the middle of COVID, when you have high unemployment, you have folks, whether it be because their kids are not back in school or their kids are on quarantine, uh, or why we're still dealing with COVID, we need to continue to, uh, to uh, prop up the economy. And it's working. Look at North Carolina, who kept their benefits in place. We have the third highest job, uh, new job creation of any state in the nation, and we kept our unemployment benefits. You're on point. Go ahead, Jonah. What's, I give the Republicans credit because they spend a lot of time crafting these bills, knowing they're probably going to get vetoed. But I don't think they're put together to kind of make law, but almost to kind of box in the governor, knowing that he's going to have to be on the defensive. He's going to have to now defend. Well, they're, they're putting together campaign issues. Which is, look, I mean, elections have consequences and, and elections also determine things. And speaking of elections also happening this week are a lot of public meetings about redistricting. And of course, which is every two years, voters get to pick who represents them every 10 years the representatives get to pick kind of who their voters are. And right now there are public meetings which are important and Republicans are vowing that redistricting is not gonna use any racial data, any voter data, any election data. So they're promising a transparent uh, process. The public meetings though weren't virtual. So you have this interesting dichotomy and of course you have the perception okay. of the problems of we the past it. that uh, Republicans are gonna have to win over. Okay, I wanna move on and talk about the constitutional amendment cases headed to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Back in 2018, Mark, voters in North Carolina approved four constitutional amendments uh, for our state constitution. The NAACP didn't like two of them. One would lower the existing constitutional cap on state income tax rates. The other would put voter ID into the constitution. Their argument in front of a trial court was that the gerrymandered General Assembly was so gerrymandered that the legislature didn't have the right to put the constitutional amendments on the ballot. A trial court judge in Wake County said, okay, I'll buy that argument. But the Court of Appeals uh, reversed that ruling. So uh, as it stands, the constitutional amendments would stand. But the appeal from the NAACP goes to the Supreme Court, which we know has four Democrats and three Republican justices. But the NAACP doesn't really like those odds that well. So they want to get the two newest justices, both Republicans, removed from hearing the, the case. Rationale the that? rationale being that uh, Justice Tamara Berenger was a state senator at the time that all of this happened with the vote and that the other, Phil Berger Jr., is the son of the Senate leader and thus has too close of ties. The argument from the other side in uh, combating this is, well, why don't you want to get rid of Justice Anita Earls, who actually represented the NAACP in previous cases? Morgan, does this case have merit? I think uh, certainly a trial court judge felt that it did, and a court of appeals uh, led by Republicans uh, disagreed. And I think this is, as Mitch says, going to go to the Supreme Court. I think the big question about whether or not uh, these judge justices should recuse themselves. I mean, guys, it's just common sense. You can't you can't rule on a case where your father's a named defendant. Like that's but, just but plain common be, sense. In most cases, wouldn't Berger be a named defendant? 
Well, that's the legislature. But that's not a good defense. You should have thought about that before you ran for the office. It, uh, the fact that, listen, if if my father was a named defendant, I have to recuse myself. That's pretty easy. And as far as Behringer, the fact that she was one of the folks that led the effort to pass these laws and these amendments, and now she gets to determine whether they're constitutional. I mean, come on. That's just common sense, guys. Jay. Well, I think one of the things that's important to point out is we've got a North Carolina um, Code of Judicial Conduct, which is the governing document in determining whether justices um, should recuse themselves. And, you know, the document is very specific about the fact that if you've got family members, uh, you should recuse yourself. And in this instance, as Morgan's pointed out, uh, Justice Berger's father, uh, Phil Berger, the leader of the Senate, uh, is being sued. I mean, historically, it, has it ever been done before? Well, we we know that uh, Justice Berger, when he was on the appellate court, actually recused himself a similar litigation that did that but dealt with the voter Supreme ID. Court level. Not uh, not at the Supreme Court level, um, to my knowledge. But one thing that I will say, I mean, this is this is interesting to point out. I mean, it's ultimately an unsettled legal question. We could have the justices just meet behind closed doors and resolve the issue, and they'll we, and we. And, and there may there may be no explanation for the reasoning for recusing themselves. Jonah, put this in context, my friend. I think it's, look, regrettable that at the state level and at the federal level, I mean, the Supreme Courts are increasingly under pressure of being politicized. And whether you think it's right, you think it's wrong, they should recuse themselves, they shouldn't. The perception among many voters is they try to find the decision and then, or they, they have a decision in mind and then try to rationalize whatever ruling they're going to have. And look, on the Supreme Court level in Washington, you have Clarence Thomas, you have Amy Coney Barrett, you now have Stephen Breyer all coming and saying, we worry about the legitimacy of the court in the public's eyes. And that applies to the state court too, especially when for the state Supreme Court, they don't rule whether or not uh, you know, they don't rule on things like the Supreme Court. They basically rule on whether or not there was some sort of error in the case uh, that, you know, or if it was judged incorrectly, or if there was some sort of technicality that was wrong. We just you want them to be independent and that should be it. Great rap. I want to talk about the California recall. I see you smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, this week, Ga uh, Governor Gavin Newsom survived um, the recall attempt, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in California, and survived being the, the understatement. Uh, he won by a two-to-one margin. Uh, I think several things, you know, this, this was something about a month ago people thought was going to be touch and go. I Did think, you think it was going to be touch and go at that point? I never thought it was going to be touch and go. California, 25% of California is registered Republican. 75% is not. Uh, th this was always a, a leap to get it done. But what I'll tell you is I think what changed and what, what uh, the Newsom campaign was really, really smart in doing is they, tur they, they changed this, the, the narrative of this from a referendum about him to a referendum about his leading opponent, conservative talk show host Larry Elder, who ran a Trumpian campaign talking about... They played uh, the Trump card. They played the Trump card, but he also ran something talking that he was anti-science, he's anti-vax, he was... Uh, floating conspiracy theories, and I think it is a canary in the coal mine for Republicans. If you think that's a message to run on, now obviously it's a blue state, but that's not going to be successful. The second thing they did was they nationalized it, uh, and, and they nationalized the race, which energized the base. They brought in uh, President Biden. They brought <clears throat> one that me. knew that they had the numbers. Yeah, and they brought in Vice President Harris and, and other Democrats nationally, and that energized the base and turned out and, and for a massive win for uh, Democrats. Is there lessons learned for Republicans in the Virginia governor's race? 
you know, yeah, I think you're seeing the same thing. You saw a big debate uh, in the last couple of days between uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe and the Republican opponent um, in Virginia, where it really revolved around are you for science or not for science? And I think the danger of Republicans for embracing this anti-vax is that the majority of voters aren't where they are. Okay, Jonah? Majority of voters in California. I mean, California right. can be its own country. It is has a GDP that's the size of most countries, much bigger. And, uh, I mean, look, I love L.A. just like everybody else does, I guess. But L.A., San Francisco are so different. But I, I don't know that California is going to be emblematic of the rest of the country. And that, I think, is also indicative of many people say what California wants, we don't want. And I don't know that any of the lessons on either. Now, I, I will say that it does prove that basically uh, Democrats are going to try to campaign against Trump probably for the next 20 years, whether he's on the ballot or not, because a lot of candidates attached to him. I think the real shame in all this is the threshold for recall was so low, they spent $270 million on this when they could have gone to homelessness, they could have gone to health care, all these other things. Right, and Democrats now are trying to get rid of the recall in California. Um, well, I know I know there have been questions that there have been questions that have been arisen that, that have come up about looking at the recall effort in twenty twenty two. Trump did not endorse, though, correct? He did not endorse Larry Elder. Uh, he did not, but I mean but the, he was but, on the ballot. But he was on the ballot, and I think to Morgan's point, number one, um, I think it's a playbook for Democrats to nationalize races. I mean, clearly. Uh, Larry Elder is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Donald Trump is not Ronald Reagan. So, I mean, that that's that. And, and for I and think it's for, not Ronald Reagan's party anymore. In it, California. It's not. But the the other thing that the other thing that I'll point out to kind of push back on Jonah's point, actually, if you actually look at Orange County, where Republicans have been commit, competitive, the recall effort actually failed there by five percent. So, I think it actually illustrates the fact that you can take parts of right. what happened in the recall effort and apply it into 2022. Let's wrap this up in about 30. The best thing that happened at Gavin Newsom was that the leading contender was Larry Elder. I mean, had another Democrat decided, oh, I'm going to try to take advantage of this, someone who had some name recognition, or if Republicans had put up someone who was just managerial, who didn't come across as, uh, as Trumpian, but came across as a competent person who could fix what ails California, it might have been a much different story. Yeah, but Elder speaking fees are up. Okay, let's go to the most <laughs> underreported story of the week. We talked about the Supreme Court already, but I'm going to go back to the Supreme Court. There's an ongoing case that's going to decide whether 50,000-plus felons who have finished their active prison time are going to be able to vote in the future in North Carolina elections. Our state constitution says felons can't vote unless it is spelled out in the law, but a three-judge panel back in August throughout the law and said these felons should vote, which is basically judges rewriting the law. Eleven days later, the Court of Appeals issued a stay on that ruling. The Supreme Court has kept the stay, but the Supreme Court said anyone who acted quickly and registered to vote in between the time of the, court, the trial court ruling and the appeals court ruling, you get to vote. So it's an interesting dilemma. Are you making phone calls right now to get out the vote? I, 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 that's a good story idea. I'll take that. Yeah. Underreported, please. Glad we can help. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so my underreported is, it goes a little bit back to California, but it ties into uh, the 2020 election, is even before the first votes were cast in California, uh, Trump and a lot of Republicans were claiming the election was rigged. Again, in a state as blue as California. And I think the danger in all of this, 
and it's something that is, is the biggest threat to, to our democracy since the Civil War, is Trump has now convinced 65% of Republicans that Joe Biden was not actually elected. They are, they are running on a message of election fraud everywhere. If a Democrat wins, somebody must achieve. Was it everywhere or was it just out there recently? Would, sorry. Well, when they started making the election fraud claims. No, it's just, well, that was the only election. So, right, right, but, right. But, they're, but making the argument that California's election yeah, I, I don't think that listen, dog hunts. It doesn't hunt. And the, the big point, Mark, is you've got all of these January the 6th rallies that are taking place the next week that are really about election fraud. And again, it is extremely dangerous to our democracy that you've got such a large majority of one party who believes that elections aren't validated unless they win. Jonah, underreported, please, my friend. So let's go to the Korean Peninsula because uh, North Korea just fired two ballistic missiles in tests this week. South Korea then countered that. And let's not forget about this regime of North Korea, which, as we marked 9-11 anniversary last week, was part of the axis of evil that President Bush had. Now, President Trump had two very high-profile sit-downs with Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea. I remember at the time people were saying give him the Nobel Prize because, you know, that dialogue was supposed to head somewhere. Uh, clearly, either because President Trump is not in office anymore or because North Korea has lost patience or it's because it's North Korea, they're going to fire these ballistic missiles again. Um, this is a Did huge thing. Did the Biden uh, uh, administration respond, have anything to say about that? I mean, they condemned it, and of course, but it, uh, Japan... Strong um, memo to follow? Well, of course, and those, they're going to circle back, I think, is the... <laughs> is the um, look, it, it's a very troubling. Anyone who thinks about why the U.S. still has presence there, it's because they are on the doorstep of North Korea, of China, and Russia, and that's the kind of stability that we need right now that North Korea is trying to threaten. Jay? Uh, the Wall Street Journal's been running a series of, uh, an ongoing series called the Facebook Files, and the, the latest series is really interesting because it looks at a series of internal Facebook documents and research reports about uh, what, and this has all been turned over to a whistleblower, but the latest series actually points out that Facebook tried to make their platform healthier, but in turn, uh, the platform became angrier. And so as a result um, of Facebook's efforts um, and the algorithm, people started sharing uh, messages that were mi that included misinformation that were violent in content and they got shared repeatedly. I think to Morgan's point, if it's not Donald Trump, it's certainly social media that's fraying our democracy. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My what's up is taxes. If U.S. House Democrats get their way, the Ways and Means Committee unveiled its plan to help pay for all of the things that President Biden wants to do. You would see a 39.6% individual tax rate. Uh, capital gains would go from 20 to 25 percent. The corporate rate would go from 21 to 26 and a half percent. Overall, $2.2 trillion in new revenue over the next 10 years. My down, the North Carolina Department of Transportation, another audit this week from State Auditor Beth Wood. She said, the good news, no overspending from the DOT. The bad news, that was just luck. They haven't changed any of the things. <laughs> they haven't changed any of the things that caused the overspending in the past. Morgan? I'd rather be lucky than good any, any day of the week. Uh, so my up this week is SpaceX. Uh, you launched four non-astronauts into space. And, and I say that's up, not only is it an incredible right. story, uh, but for every kid out there who is dreaming of going to space, the future is so bright. You know, 
40 some years ago, my mother told me I could be anything I wanted, including an astronaut. And so, you know, I may get my chance at this point because clearly I think health wise. You got the money, 200000 to fly up there with It's going to take money because I, I'm not going to pass the health quiz, I can tell you that. Uh, uh, down this week is Madison Cawthorn, the, the wayward member of Congress from West North Carolina who is spending his time instead of working on federal issues, uh, going to school board meetings and protesting uh, the school board's ability to try to keep kids safe. And in two instances, he showed up on campus with a knife uh, and apparently didn't realize that you can't do that. Jonah? A campus four hours away from his district in Johnson 300 County. miles. Uh, what's up is uh, the amount of money that is being spent on uh, caring for unvaccinated uh, individuals in this country. Kaiser Family Foundation reporting $6 billion is being spent to treat unvaccinated Americans in these hospitals. And what's going to happen is someone has to pay for that. It's going to trickle down to the hospitals who then have to charge more from the insurance companies, who then have to char okay. charge more from policyholders. Uh, who's down is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. Um, I, the, the president is standing behind him with this story that's come out that for potentially, now. for now, I, I, I expect, I, I think probably a resignation might not be the worst thing. Jay? Well, we talk a lot about inflation on this uh, show, and so who's up We're a is a uh, show. We are. Uh, um, uh, so who's up is Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. Some centrist Democrats now are urging for him, urging President Biden for him to be reappointed as Fed Chair for a second term. Uh, they believe that'll signal more um, more independence to the institution and the market. Does he start tapering back on the printing of money? Uh, I mean, I'm not an economist, Mark. So, I mean, I think I think I think Powell has done a good job in trying right. to keep the economy humming. Uh, and who's down is civic illiteracy. Interestingly enough, a poll by by the Annenberg Center finds that polar a more polarized society has actually led to Americans knowing more about the three branches of government. So it used to be that only a third of Americans could identify uh, the three branches of government back in 2006. Now it's more than half. So polarization, more civics education. Excuse me. Lawmakers finalized latest bill on governor's emergency powers, setting up another veto. Headline next week, Morgan? That'll be sustained. Uh, <laughs> so I think the next week is, sub-headline, uh, yeah, sub -headline is I think you're going to see progress on the budget and they're going to start between the House and Senate, start negotiating with the governor. Headline quickly. Dem infighting in Washington threatens infrastructure. Headline next week. Redistricting and budget negotiations continue. Will they actually finish by Thanksgiving? Great job, gents. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. See you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.